Welcome to Jim and Pat's Glasgow West End Chat. Remarkably, this is episode 100. Hope you are well and I hope you're enjoying your festive break or your festive madness, whatever it is uh, or however you see it. This is the second half of my chat with the esteemed Leslie Riddock. In part one, we learned about Leslie's formative years and we learned a bit about the background to making the film. The film is called Denmark, The State of Happiness. And in this second part, Leslie tells us a bit more about the film itself. I can tell you it's a fabulous film, I've seen it a couple of times, so if you get a chance to see it in the cinema, grab a ticket and go along, you'll definitely enjoy it. Anyway, enough of me, let's hear more from Leslie Riddock. Okay, so I see the uh, the guy Charlie Stewart. I was going to ask you a bit about him because clearly he's a very talented man uh, doing the filming. The filming is unbelievably good. Where, where did he come into the picture along along the road for your making your films? Is that? Um, I'm trying to remember. It's like one of these ones where you've known people for a while. But actually, Charlie and I, and I don't remember why we did this either. But we made a film about Dundee a, a while ago when basically I noticed because I live up near Dundee. Dundee went through renovations and took down a lot of the pretty ghastly old Dun, you know, waterfront. Um, mm-hmm. So a lot of the overbridges and the horrible Tayside House and all that kind of thing. And at the point when that was happening, when I kind of realised that actually, as soon as it had gone, nobody would remember what had, what had been done. You know, nobody. It would suddenly just all have disappear, be slightly different. And as a piece of history, mm-hmm. it was just a little window. While it was still there, you yeah. could do a film that showed, you know, the transformation. So we got a little bit of money from Dundee Council to just jump in and do that. And I don't know why Charlie and I did that together. But we also sort of dug around a bit and found all sorts of interesting things about Dundee. Um, there's There was a tremendous uh, chief engineer in the city in the 1900s, a guy called James Thompson. He was responsible for the first dual carriageway in Britain, um, which was the Kingsway. He was responsible for the first central heating in houses. The council houses in Craigie are still some of the most sought-off after buildings right. in Dundee. Um, and he had this plan to have a real amazing waterfront modelled on Chicago for Dundee. Uh, and he had all these incredible architectural drawings, really fabulous. And piecing it together, I mean, it was an amazing thing to go back and think, well, what happened and why? Because Dundee is one of these cities that there is incredible interest in Dun- by Dundonians about Dundee. Um, so I'd ended up in the archives and speaking to archivists, trying to piece together what went wrong. And it seems to be that Churchill... Uh, who was the MP for Dundee at the time, was trying to sort of uh, woo the voters of Dundee by citing warships in the docks of Dundee. This was, after all, just in the run-up to the First World War, perhaps in the interim period between the two wars. And that essentially meant the other dock was needed for all the transport that was there was the normal transport around Dundee. And that meant the land that James Thompson had earmarked to infill to build this incredible waterfront was lost. Right. Um, so essentially, it was Winston Churchill what done it. You know, the first opportunity to have the most spectacular waterfront in Britain was lost because of that, by the looks of it. So we made that film and it went onto DVDs and got shown around Dundee a bit and was stalked by a place called Borders Bookshop in Dundee, which, right. <clears throat> which went bust 
with all the stock inside, like a thousand DVDs we lost. Goodness me. Yes. So that's where that film went. Um, so that was the first time Charlie and I met, and we've just kept in touch on and off over the years. Of course, bef when we did that way, way long ago, independence hadn't reared its head. So I, you may find this as well, that there's people that you've known for a long time in, in a professional capacity or whatever, and you don't know what they think about independence. So when you find out to your delight that actually they've quietly been massive independent supporters all their lives, it mm -hmm. sort of throws you together again. Yeah, absolutely. So does he, I mean, obviously did this film, but does he have another, does he have a production unit or what, how does, what does he operate within? Is he a professional filmmaker with other people yeah. or is, is it a freelance kind of guy or what? He's he's a he's he's got a little company, um, right. but he's a but basically he's a freelance filmmaker director, and right. he works with you know BBC Channel Four Channel Five series and so right. on. Um, so he's 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 kind of a free he he's a freelance in much the same way as I suppose I bop around being mm -hmm. a freelance. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. times are tough actually for for filmmakers like Charlie in Scotland. Yeah, I can't remember any names because I've got terrible memory, but I know some people that say that to me who are in film you know they, they, they make films uh and uh, this last wee while has been absolutely awful <laughs> well apparently yeah. there was a period um after covid where there was a lot of stuff commissioned very quickly because there'd mm -hmm. been nothing and right. then the money ran out so it sorted right. there was a drought then there was a drought lander because <clears throat> outlander has been a big source right. of work for people right. and there was a break on that Right. There was the strike as well by yeah, of course, actors yeah. and writers, yeah, yeah. which kind of didn't help as well, and mm. just general stuff. So, I mean, I know from Scottish Green, though, that, that, that now there's more money made in Scotland through feature films than for working in, for the BBC or for, for broadcasters, right. which is a change. And, yeah. I mean, there's some epic stuff yeah. going on so it may be that slowly there's a move for for people to make more of their income from actual film work yeah um rather than trying to work for the beeb problematic there was a very good piece Stuart cosgrove wrote recently about the problem of you know there being a quota now for stuff coming from scotland fulfilled mm -hmm. by companies from london you know, just putting a plaque on a door somewhere in Glasgow and yeah. then, you know, sending... Yeah, I read that article, pieces. I think, of his. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It was funny to say that because we were watching... It was a kind of next version of Bridgerton on Apple, uh, which we've been watching. And a lot, and it was a several... It's, all, it's actually based on... A lot of it's filmed in Scotland and a lot of it's filmed in Glasgow. And we were watching it and I said, that looks like uh, the Glasgow University, you know, the bit... Uh, what do you call that bit with the... You know, you, the pillars and the lights and what's oh, that yes, called? Oh, yes, the underneathy bit. Yeah. It's that, it looks exactly like that. I'm in there all the time. And she's passing yeah. that. That's, that's, that's it. So they filmed this whole bit <laughs> in Glasgow University. And previous to that, I, we were just kind of watching that. Okay, look, that looks like Scotland. Oh, that little bit there looks like such and such a street. And, that, and it, it, so I looked up on the internet and it was all filmed in Scotland, all, you know, to a large extent. That post bridge, I don't know what it's called, it's something, it's a sort of the next Bridgerton type thing on Apple. Uh, yeah, but there's is, other things that you wouldn't like Good Omens 2, for example, yeah. with David Tennant and uh, Michael Sheen. And right. That was all filmed in a studio in Scotland, all of it. Right, right. So it's, yeah, it's mostly set in London and they make a wee trip up to Edinburgh within it, which I thought was the Scottish bit. 
But the director is Scottish and insisted that the whole thing was filmed in Scotland. Right, right. So, you know, people putting their foot down like that can make massive differences. And, I mean, there's there's now there's two or three big studios that have got going. So, yeah. you know, you'd like to think that uh, things are quietly turning around. Well, you'd hope so. Uh, I mean, I, I suppose to some extent, the people that do these things tend to all come from a particular narrow social uh, background, unfortunately, uh, just because there's still huge inequality of opportunity, depending not, how you... Not, not in the case of Good Omens. I'm trying to... I'm going to misremember his name. I want to say Douglas McRae, but I have a horrible right. feeling that's one of those bits is not right. And he comes from Sky, Douglas McKinnon. Right. Um, so he's, you know, he comes from a croft on Sky. Right, OK. So don't okay. chuck all this, No. You know, no, well... I can chuck it if I have the statistics to back it up, of course, and I don't have them to hand, but quite a lot of the media do come from the same uh, same background. If, if we look up the stats, we'll find that that's the case. So so it's not completely just uh, prejudice, uh, as it, you know, there are some sort of some stats to back that kind of stuff up. And not necessarily the film world, but the sort of general journalism and um, yeah, TV we're world. Talking, but we're talking yeah. films, and it just yeah. as an industry, yeah. um, you know, to get a sort to get a vote of confidence from foreign filmmakers yeah. is quite an important thing to do because as lots yeah. of people will have seen Glasgow stand in for Moscow, you know, Madrid, yeah. <laughs> Cuba, yeah. you know, everything like that. But once you get to the to the point where you can also have studios. Where yeah. you can, I wish I could remember which studio it was that has the set for Good Omens, but it was just set up for an entire year. Nothing moved, and it was an incredible yeah. build. If you look at Good Omens, um, you know the wee shop that the guys in and we haven't watched that. We everything. need to watch that. Yeah, all of that is in is an interior. Mm -hmm. You yeah. really not believe it. So I know people quite like that, and they like seeing Superman being filmed on the streets and all. Mm -hmm. You know, everything's snarling to a halt, and famous people turning up. Yeah. And, cafes and all that kind of thing but also the in the indoor big big studios that's a mm -hmm. having that there as well uh is what seals the deal yeah no in, in my defense which is not really a defense i do have a chip in my shoulder so that's my defense on, on all these things when it comes to social class and opportunity no, you're not, <laughs> chip, you're not chip on your shoulder i'm the man but but it's true but then just when it's when there's an opportunity yeah. to just have a little tiny fragment of like that was a great thing Douglas McKinnon yeah. did, putting his foot down. Good news. To, I wish I knew offhand or could remember the scale yeah. of the budget that then went into Scotland, but it was millions of pounds right. through one decision, you know. Good. So let's have more of them. Okay, what I think we'll do is we'll, we'll, we'll go to the part, part where you sell the film. How about that? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've talked about how it was made. We've talked about your mm -hmm. background, your illustrious background. Let's sell the film to the folk that might be watching this, listening to this podcast. Uh, see, I've, I've watched it a couple of times. No, I've watched it once and listened to it once. And uh, I mean, it's a tremendous piece of work, no doubt about it. Uh, so I, I don't know how you might want to approach this idea of telling us about the film in a way that once makes people go and watch it. Yeah. Uh, well, well, yeah, because there's a, there's a stage head. where you there's a stage where you also think, well, I mean, if you explain it well enough, nobody needs to go and watch it. Well, that's true. I did think I did think about that. I thought, well, you know, through the entire works. script, we've and got actually, we've got a niece that will tell you things like that. She'll go to the pictures and pals say, what was the, what was the picture? And she will tell you every scene 
It would take the same amount of time to tell you about it as the original film. <laughs> <laughs> Everything. <laughs> so we don't we don't want to go that extreme. Yeah, yeah. We're a bit back well, from that. But I guess the thing here's the thing. Denmark nearly ceased to exist as a country in 1864. Right. It used to own or run or manage nearly the you know half of Northern Europe. It was, if right. you like, the England of the peace. Um, little Denmark, because of its control of the Skagerrak and Kattegat Straits, um, all the things you've watched, Vikings, you know, all these, they were Danes, right, in the, in the yeah. bulk. So Denmark was a powerful country. It it owned Estonia until about the 12th and 13th centuries. It owned and, or ran or managed Norway, Sweden, Finland, Iceland, and still owns essentially the Faroes and Greenland. Right. But it also... You know, people will, if they've been watching their last kingdom, just to run through all the Viking-related stuff on TV, um, people will know that Danelaw also was uh, 200 years of England from London to Chester being run by Danes from 1884. Right. So the point about this is these were kind of like guys who were used to running stuff, used to owning stuff, used to being in charge, used to being the little center of a big empire. And bit by bit, mm -hmm. it all went south. So, you know, all the Nordic, the other Nordic countries basically peeled off and became independent. The last big change for them mm -hmm. was 1864 um, with, and people will now go, God, I remember this from history, Schleswig-Holstein. Um, this was an area now in Germany, but of Danish speakers. And the belief then uh, of, of sort of romantic nationalism was that uh, the boundaries of countries should cohere with the limits of language. So right. the Danes, the Danish nobility decided they were going to uh, push the boat out. Although if they'd pushed a boat out, they would have probably been all right because their navy was a lot stronger than their army. And they basically took on a war against another guy that you don't need to have a PhD in history to go, ooh, that was such a good idea, Bismarck. Right. <laughs> so they take yeah. on Bismarck, you know, the, the heat bummer of Prussia, um, and basically they're annihilated. I mean, in 1864, guys are dying, Danes are dying in the ditch the same way that our guys did in the Somme. And um, at that point, Denmark nearly ceases to exist, because Bismarck could just have rolled straight over and taken the whole country. And the only reason it didn't happen is because Britain and France didn't want to see Bismarck become any more powerful than he was, so they stepped in. Right. So can you imagine that this is what Denmark went through as a country? It had gone from running everything, and when I was doing a PhD in Norway um, very recently, I was in the archives looking at huts in Norway in 1922. I'd spent uh, quite some time learning Norwegian in anticipation of this moment of getting into the archives in Norway, only to discover that all the documentation from 1922 was still in Danish. Thank right. God. Um, that's how pervasive the Danish influence was, and they nearly, they nearly ceased to exist. So the question to me is, how does a country cope with that level of assault, if you like, mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. hurt or whatever? Yeah. Um, Chastisement. Without, yeah. yeah. Um, from going from, you know, big to small and end up one of the most successful countries on earth, which by any measure they are. 
Mm-hmm. And so I find that really fascinating. Um, if I'd sort of had total run of the film, I would probably have done it a little differently because that wasn't very foregrounded, that historical thing. Charlie's not so much into the history. But to me, that for a lot of yesers, that's the reason you should be interested in Denmark. Mm-hmm. Because unlike Norway, Iceland, these countries became independent from bigger countries. Yeah. Denmark lost it all and found itself because the concentration that the having to sort of adjust your 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 thinking they lost almost half their territory and half their population in one year in 1864 um so that changed their thinking completely and and they they had to become a lot more adept as a country they had to focus on themselves more and they had to focus on their education system which is an astonishing system um so that that's why it's worth looking at this because there's another country that we kind of live in, but certainly our our neighbours who have lost an empire, mm-hmm. who've mm-hmm. lost status, who have got nostalgia for a kind of Great Britain um, of yore that mm-hmm. basically doesn't exist anymore and cannot get over it, and are stuck in a sort of archaic time warp of constantly trying to go back and retrieve what they think they've lost and what they're due and feel exceptional and have to be treated specially. And what Denmark does is exactly the opposite from that. So that's what's interesting about the film, I think, that Mm -hmm. the undercurrent of all of that runs through it is how well these guys have managed to adjust to basically losing everything and becoming a small country that, that, that has actually made, you know, huge achievements. Yeah, I mean, it's a psychological thing, isn't it? I mean, clearly, I mean, one thing that does come across on the film is just their attitude and their kind of outlook in life and the kind of community aspects and the kind of doing things together and the cooperation and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, I don't know if that comes from that psychological dent back then. I don't know. I don't know. But there's certainly something in their approach. The next thing that's quite interesting, again, I would have had more of this, but the guy who was going to be the expert on this didn't turn up um, at the the museum when we went to film. And these Mm. things happen. So it was a guy called uh, Nikolai Grundfig. Now, anybody in education circles will go, ah, Grundfig. And... This this guy was very influential in the 1800s leading up to the period of this big moment for Denmark nearly ceasing to exist because he was a he was a, a essentially a minister a philosopher a bit of a politician but his big belief was that um education was not for just rote learning he was pretty anti exams mm-hmm. he was very up for the spoken word mm-hmm. um he was really huge belief that people needed to be active citizens. So what you're educating for people for was for them to be able to be vocal, st- essentially stand their ground um, and be active citizens. He wanted them to be enlightenment people so that they would be interested in arts and philosophy and all these things were taken seriously. And mm-hmm. he created this system of folk high schools, which yeah. were designed um, essentially for people who left school at the age of 14 or 15. My mum and, in fact, I think my dad both left school at 15 in Scotland. Yeah. So this was common to lots of rural communities. Dad came from Bamshire, mum came from Caithness. You know, lots of people, basically, you you, got, mm-hmm. you you know, you were in school for just about long enough to write your name and then you were out. And that's why they introduced this system 
to then try to go back in and kind of, you know, improve the skills, improve the confidence actually of people. Mm -hmm. And the remnants of that are still sitting in the Danish education system. So they, and this is all thanks to your man Grundvig. I mean, in a sense, and I'm sure I'm, I would love to spend longer to be more certain of this comparison. I'm not saying John Knox has completely shaped Scotland, and he was from a much earlier era, obviously 300 years earlier, but Grundvig shaped Denmark in a different way because the Lutherans are different to the Presbyterians. It's a mm -hmm. much more, you know, here's a, here's a difference, right? My mother used to say, many hands make light work. The Danes say, many willing hands make light work. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> There's, I think that's Lutheranism versus Presbyterianism yeah, yeah. in a oneer, right? But so what they do is, and there's the bit that you know I think has people going, my God, is that at the age of fifteen, um, kids are eligible to spend a year away from their family with other fifteen-year-olds in sort of what they call after schooler, not yeah. after school, and that's oh. called that way because at, in the old days. 14 at the age of 15 was after school yeah that stuck in my head left. actually because i was walking up the road earlier on and i was listening to it and i think that's very scottish after yes. school what are you going to do after school <laughs> well they're all you know so much of that the vocabulary yeah. is much the same but that's anyway right. these kids and as a current of the current sort of cohort around the late teens about two-thirds of them have gone through this so this is one hell mm -hmm. of a shaper if I was slightly shaped by being six foot tall, you know, when I was young, can you imagine how shaped you might be by mm -hmm. having the chance to go away for a year and take responsibility for one another in a yeah. school? So you're caring for one another, you're cooking together, and you're yeah. somewhere that you're doing something you just love. So yeah. the school that we went to look at does diving for a year. My yeah. God. You do the academic stuff on the side, but people, all the, the interviewees that we spoke to said, you know, when we said, what are we, do? they say, what are you, where are you going next? And we say, well, we're off to Skana and we're going to an after school. They went, that's fantastic. Nobody ever pays any attention to this. And my kids were transformed by this. Yeah. I think that was the thing that made the biggest impact on me when I was watching the film and when I was listening to it. Was the, it was the thing that intrigued me most because I think it's the thing that affects people most is their education and the type of education they go through. And also the kind of, you know, the kids going to school later and the uh, the after school and the folk schools and all the kind of lifelong learning. I mean, I kind of would, I kind of wanted that, if you know what I mean, just by listening to it. I thought, why uh, the hell did I not get that, you know? Well, totally. I mean, you had to dynamite me out of that after school. It was just as well yeah. that they weren't actually up and running because, I mean, the idea of being able to get yeah. a proper diving kit and, you know, oh, what's not to like? Yeah. So it's, um, I hope, um, I, I saw Jenny Gilruth, who's the education secretary, uh, before I went off to film this, she came to an event in the Edinburgh Book Festival with her wife, I think, uh, Kezia Dogdale. I mean, I'm only thinking about wife because I don't know if it's if they're married or not. But anyway, mm -hmm. Kezia was speaking with me at something, and she came up at the end. I was talking about all of this, and she said, "Boy, I'd really like to know more about this when you come back." Yeah. So I'm now in the business of trying to, you know, hack my way through all the bureaucracy to just yeah. try and get a meeting sorted. Well, it's funny. I mean, it's not exactly the same idea, but I had a, a lecturer when I was doing my degree at Glasgow uh, Caledonian. Uh, politics lecturer 
who spoke quite a lot about the Scottish education uh, system, which we exported to the world in all sorts of ways, uh, which she was talking about. And then I spoke to, uh, who's, who's the this guy that spoke Scots at the Scottish Parliament? Uh, uh, God, I've got no memory for names. No. I can't he's got the uh, mother tongue book and uh, well, Billy Kay, but Billy he's not Kay, an MS- yeah, he's not an MS. No, no, I know he wasn't, yeah. but he's, oh, he, did right. the, he did the yeah. he did he did a talk, uh, and I did a podcast. Uh, I interviewed him for the podcast, and he was also talking about the Scottish education system. I can't even remember the unique aspects of it, unfortunately, anymore. But they were different from the English, that's for sure. And they were one thing I do remember from David's talk. He said that. One of the things that was unique about the Scottish education system, there was no such thing as a failing student um, because the idea was that every student could learn everything. All that had to happen was that the teacher had to persevere with them. So you you ended up with uh, kids who would always learn all all the material, whereas in other sort of cultures, the kids are banded. When it all happens, this all happens, and it all happened by the time I was growing up. Kids get kind of put into bands according to what their aptitudes are, apparently, their intelligence. And then they get taught accordingly. Says that wasn't uh, that wasn't part of Scottish education. That was never part of Scottish education. The idea was that all the kids were as intelligent as every other kid, and they could all learn the material. And they just would take some would just take a bit longer. And that was one of the aspects that had been uh, exported to places like Japan and. China and all these other places where they invented all sorts of other things because of this. Uh, and the effect that they had on kids was quite quite enormous. Uh, but that's all sort of died in some sense in Scotland, this whole uh, idea of what Scottish education used to be. Uh-huh. Uh, and Billy Kay was also talking about the same thing and exporting Scottish education to Canada and all this kind of stuff. Uh, he was quite enam- enamoured by it. I the- think the thing is, once you spend a bit of time looking at other countries like with with the last 12 or 13 years mm-hmm. of doing so much stuff for the nordics you start off thinking oh look they do that and they do yeah. that. gosh look they do the same thing there and then you finally realize everybody is doing stuff like yeah. everybody puts their yeah. kids to school at six and seven not four and five yeah. everybody except the netherlands and britain yeah well the reason i mentioned it is simply because you mentioned that it's something that you might want to do more you know, on the whole education thing, because I'm sure there's yeah, every country you say is. I guess what I'm trying to say is yeah. just that it's just not, it's just not that difficult in the end. All the other, all the Nordic countries have have a real system of keeping cohorts together. They yeah. have the, the 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 countries that do best, Finland and Estonia, have smaller uh, smaller schools. That seems to be better for boys, particularly. Strangely enough, um, they have a much greater emphasis on the spoken word. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, you know, it's there. You, do, you just, it's, it's there, and the evidence is all there to support quite a number of the changes that we're slowly yeah, yeah. pivoting around towards. Yeah, yeah. Particularly that one about the school starting age. Yeah, yeah. The only reason that we're on four and five is because Britain had the yeah. uh, in, in earliest industrial revolution in the world, and needed to put women to work in factories, yeah. and had to get the children away, so it put them into school at the age of four. There's yeah. nothing academic that backs up four and five, no research, and every other country has got six and seven. Well, the reason so, I know that is because you mentioned it in a previous podcast, and I remember yes. it. <laughs> but happily, um, the SNP conference last year passed a motion mm. to yeah. move towards six and seven. So did the mm. Greens. 
So the thing is, it's hard because at the moment, the yes, Scottish government's taking pelters on fucking everything, all the, yeah. you know, every which way. It's like you've got to keep the show on the road and at the same time, modernise this thing. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, and in some respects, modernise back to what your traditional core was in a funny yeah. kind of way, you know? Well, that's right, that's right. Um, so, yeah, there's plenty there. It's not like we just have to sit and drink in everybody else's experience, but the intuitive um, approach that the Scots very often have, which is of sort of solidarity and, and not pecking orders and not endless judgment and stuff like that, We've got wobbly about that because, you know, it feels like Pollyanna stuff in a big bruising kind of world, especially Britain, which is a competitive race to the bottom. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And as much as you try and keep your brain out of it, you're basically drinking the Kool-Aid 24-7. Yeah. Nicola Sturgeon, even, there was very controversially brought in tests for five-year-olds. There's lots of teachers think that was just wrong. Yeah. So we've got to get, you know, here's here's the Danes. You know, they have schools, some of these schools that they have are not able to do exams. So much do they want to take the pressure back off and let mm -hmm. people explore themselves. My God, you know. Yeah. So that's the bit that it would be great to think that, you know, it's not going to come out the other end anytime soon. But um, it would be great to think that the Scottish government or MSPs would actually Think about this and actually watch the blasted film because yeah. what strikes me a lot of the time, having been in and spoken, been, if you are a politician, back to the beginning again, you know, you, you do work your way up through the greasy poles and so on and you are hodding the positions you hod. You know, it's a 24-7 job and you don't get to go around and see how the world works. Yeah. Um, I remember being in to speak to Alex Salmond about his arc of prosperity just after he coined that phrase just before 2008, the financial crash, when most of his arc of prosperity came tumbling down, Iceland and Ireland, um, and said to him, well, wh wh where did you get this idea from? And he said, well, you know, I was looking at the kind of levers that these independent countries, Ireland, Iceland, Norway, have that Scotland doesn't because it's devolved. And so I took one from each country and kind of, you know, and I said, Really? Is it just what, you know, without any respect to the wider society that it came from or anything like that? I said, have you ever visited them? He said, well, I've been to Ireland, obviously. I said, well, I have you been to Iceland or Norway? And he said, well, no. And I said, for crying in a bucket, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I can remember all the minders looking at me in horror. You know, how dare you speak to the new first minister like that? Yeah. Alex, to his credit, sort of sat back, was highly amused and said, have you got time to just stay here a minute? So I stayed there for four hours while he went and had little meetings that he was due to have with people and then came back and had, you know, argument number three, then came back, you know, whatever. And I said to him, look, the thing is, if you're not able to spend time finding out how better societies work, that the British templates are in your brain because you've been in Westminster all your adult life, let some other people do it, but let us in. Mm -hmm. And the mm -hmm. trouble with the Nicola Sturgeon period was nobody got in. Mm -hmm. So here we are now. And it's not like, I mean, geez, this is not a thing of ego about me at all. This is just a, here is some, here are some sets of films about our, they're the best functioning societies on earth. Would you think somebody in the Scottish parliament would want to be watching that to just frame up their minds a little bit? Because I can't spend more time that I don't have an energy that's really draining away. 
uh, having to try to force people who are supposed to be interested in these um, comparators mm -hmm. to just get it organised and get the film on. Well, you made the film, so you know you've done your bit. <laughs> You'd like to they, think so. <laughs> yeah, they they need to do their bit and look at and watch the film. And it's right you that you should say it should be in a cinema. I mean, I watched the uh, the the one the father and daughter one. Uh, going through the 2014 referendum, I can't remember the name of the film, but the daughter filmed to, it, and the father. To see ourselves, the, Jane, yeah, Jane which was Fraser absolutely McAllister. brilliant. Yeah. Went to see that in the uh, the arts, uh, the what's it called, the cinema at the town. Uh, I, can't, I can't remember the damn thing. Anyway, it was brilliant. Anyway, watched the film in the film theater, and uh, the both the father and the daughter were there talking about the film after it. And I've heard her talking about uh, they're very difficult to get it seen anywhere else. And it's probably a similar thing to use, a combination of the practicalities of it, but also prejudice, uh, because it's a film about independence. BBC won't, won't take it uh, because they, they, they see it as like a one side. It's not really, we're not really, her argument is it's not, it's not about, it's not a supporting independence film. It's a film about the time. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's but they won't take a, it anyway. It's, it's definitely a warts and all film, you know. It is. It, yeah, but but no, they won't. And so the thing is, I I don't waste my time, personally yeah. speaking. I just think it is a waste of. It's not just your time; it's also your emotional energy. Yeah, all the things you try to do in life use up vast amounts of emotional energy and belief. Yeah. Belief is the core thing. You know, and so if you're going to put yourself into a thing, well, people say, "Oh, why don't you try and get yourself commissioned by the BBC?" No, yeah. because it is 99% going to end in no. So, for example, with the Estonia film, um, you know, I was saying it's online. All of them are on lesliridich.com forward slash film. They're all free to view. Mm -hmm. um, the Estonia one now has been watched almost half a million times. Yeah, that's because we own the rights. If it was commissioned by the BBC, it would have been put on at 11 o'clock on the BBC Scotland channel. 3,000 people would have watched it and that would be the end of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this way, I mean, you know, of course it would be nice, especially as somebody who started off in life as a broadcaster, <laughs> to think that you might have some broadcast opportunities. <laughs> but, you know, you can either get, and this is what I mean about getting attached to disappointment and attached to the negative side of it. Yeah. Because you can either look at it and think, why is this not on whatever? Or you can think to yourself, well, Dancer, actually, you know, there's a lot of the parts of the world now understand the story of Estonia through the prism of um, some comparisons with Scotland. Yeah, yeah. Amazingly, you know. And like, for the purposes of what we're trying to do, that's actually okay. Yeah, I, mean, I think the other thing about anybody who's creative and anybody who's making things, usually it's the making thing bit that you find the most attractive. Uh, and so once you've made it, you want to start thinking about the next thing you're going to make, and you well, don't see, necessarily. Like, I'm, I'm not like this actually. No? Right, well that's Charlie, that's Charlie's good. like that. Um, I'm like that. I think unfortunately, as a filmmaker, you know, he's used to handing over a product, and then because he does tend to work for broadcasters. Yeah. Somebody else does the rest of it, you know. Yeah. Whereas I really actually do enjoy doing the thing of going around and seeing yeah. people see the film because I learn a lot more in a way sort of about how people are seeing it from the yeah. questions, the reactions. Well, that's good. Seeing it you know? over and over again, you watch people 
you know, there's a bit of an intake of breath at the same time. Sometimes people cry in some of what, these films at the same time. They laugh at the same, you know, and you you you, you learn from that how mm-hmm. you're having an impact. And then what is the general stuff that people want to talk about? And through the prism of that, you can have a really deep conversation about Scotland. It's like a lot of the time, it's hard to talk about the big thing in your life. That's why, you know, films can be important because they mm-hmm. give you a, a narrative or a story that's sort of separate, but with obvious resonance. So these stories basically are kind of about Scotland in a funny kind of way, but through the prism of countries that you don't know about, which have mm-hmm. actually managed to hoik themselves out of whatever tough corner they were in. Yeah. And the mind constantly sits, I don't know about you, but having obviously watched all the films I've made and then watched people watching them, the mind is constantly kind of going flickering around, why didn't Scotland do that? Why can't we yeah, do absolutely. that? Why yeah. don't we do that? Because with the Denmark film, it's only been shown about four times now. But at every, the end of it, every time I've said, this this film makes me feel very sad by the end of it because that should be us. And instantly yeah. half the room just says, yes. Yeah, that's what I was thinking myself. I mean, even when you were talking there, I was thinking back to me watching it. I was thinking that it, what it makes me feel is, isn't it terrible that we are sitting in Scotland and we are, and we are not doing these things? And not only are we not doing them, but we can't do them. Uh, because of the situation we're in, uh, I don't mean that that as a negative yeah. thing, as, because you know I'm a very positive person <laughs> uh, about independence and about Scotland. But just the circumstances we're in, and the psychological aspect of Scottish people, uh, it's a bit of kind of worn downness about a lot of Scottish folk. Uh, that even if you show them something that they can do uh, in a general kind of society sense, they think we won't be able to do that. <laughs> So there's a bit of that there, you know, and yeah. in myself. I don't mean I don't mean that against oh, other yes. people. I mean we, in myself. I've got the virus. I mean that's where oh. that's basically the book Thrive that I have. Yeah. Out. Yeah. And I'm off to do an event about it in two hours' time in Kinross. Um, but a lot of that book ended up being yeah. about about the virus. You know, the yeah. virus of yeah. of of being a second class citizen. And if if I didn't have some of that. Actually, in a funny kind of way, thanks to my mother, <laughs> who came from a cleared area of Caithness, mm-hmm. um, you need to have, you know, you need to have a little touch of the virus to understand its hold yeah. and its potency. Um, you can't undo it until you kind of understand the power of it. Uh, people that have been fortunate enough through their background or whatever it is to have, you know, not got the little bit of the cringe in there somewhere or a little bit of the hesitation or the I'm not worthy or this is for other types of people, all that stuff. If you don't have that in you, you can't really understand why Scots didn't vote for independence, to be blunt. Yeah, that's right. You know, I mean, I could relate to that. I mean, I wasn't an independent supporter until I did I started doing research prior to the 2014 uh, referendum. I don't mean I wasn't. I wasn't either or. I, w- I hadn't spent my life thinking about it as much as I probably should have. Uh, but, you know, I, I'm the sort of person that looks at something, oh, I need to do some research. <laughs> That's the kind of a person I am. I want to learn about this because this is the biggest vote in my entire life that I will ever have. I need to know why, what, what I should vote for. Uh-huh. And then, of course, I was completely, my eyes were opened, my mind was opened, I was appalled, I was <laughs> all of the things that you are when you discover all sorts of things about the situation that Scotland's in. Uh, it, I was just completely, my mind was completely blown 
uh, you know, and then became a fervent yes supporter and tried mm. to blow other people's minds. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, occasionally successfully, I did convert people prior to that election. But it's, it's very difficult. I mean, you often say that people are worn out uh, campaigning for independence and that you need a break. I don't feel I've had a break. I've been campaigning since 2014 without any stop whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just part of who I am to uh -huh. continually try and convert people and talk about it and whatever, you know. That's yes. probably why, you know, why and, I am where I am. And out. I mean, that's where, you know, I, I just am very conscious that, uh, yeah, you, you know, there is a changing of the guard for sure that needs mm -hmm. to happen and is happening. Um, and every event I go to that has, you know, predominance of grey hairs, uh, haired people in the audience, and uh, it sort of grieves me the way that people put themselves down because they're just the older generation. I mean, if we'd actually got most of the older generation voting yes last time, yeah. we'd have been laughing, you know. That's but I true. think the thing is, um, from and this might be a complacent thought, uh, but from speaking to some of the younger folk, there's such, I mean, the, the latest opinion poll, for example, 54% Ipsos Mori, 54% yeah. yes, amongst um, under 30s, 66%. Now, when you start to talk to some of the younger ones, you know, th they're not, they don't feel the need to sit and kind of, you know, agonize and get mm -hmm. their heads around how to work. It's almost like, I often think about this like a car. I, I don't know how the car works. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I get in it and sort of it goes. Um, but Scots have taken upon themselves to understand every aspect of the camps, you know, the economics, for example, you know, what different model of yeah. currency should we have? I mean, this is well above most people's pay grades. Yeah. And that's not just that. What sort of education system should we have? What sort of this should mm -hmm. we do? Can, how can we model a border? Will we get into the EU? Is that the best destination anyway? You know, it's extraordinary to think that the average Scot, not maybe the average Scot, but many Scots, will actually be fairly up to speed with that. I did a thing last night with a brilliant group called Europe for Scotland, mm -hmm. and they've launched a petition uh, to get Scots to sign up asking Europe to bear Scotland in mind in its enlargement planning. Right. Because it's thinking about that for Ukraine and Moldova, but, you know, we've got to keep going, and there's us, you know, yeah. over here in the West, right? We could be we could be your first folk, right? And we're already EU citizens. There's no problem yeah. with us, right? Um, so this group, Europe for Scotland, has got a whole lot of sort of Scotophiles all over Europe who formed we committees ready to lobby politicians on our behalf. And all we need to do is get off our backsides and sign the the petition, essentially saying, would you please go and, you know, we haven't got a voice in Europe. This is the first European elections next year where we will not have a yeah. voice. Yeah. So, you know, that that one is a very important thing to do. And these guys, the the two, the couple that are running that, who are a lovely young couple, Andrea Pisauro from Italy and Janina Yetta from Germany, they constantly remark on the kind of level of knowledge in Scotland about everything. <laughs> it's kind of mind-blowing. Yeah. This is what we've had to do. And it's, in a way, it's too much. You know, we shouldn't need to know this level of detail to be able to work our way through life. It basically fries your brains. Yeah. So I think yeah. the younger crew are looking at it and thinking, a bit like me in the car. They're just thinking independence works. That's fine. I don't need to hear a thing about economics and what currency or bloody blah, blah. I'm just going to yeah. say yes, actually. Um, so I hope there's some of that there. 
Yeah, I mean, I think at the moment, because we aren't independent, we do need to be thinking about all these things. That's the problem. I mean, I feel as if I have an obligation to be thinking about all these things <laughs> in my entire life, particularly okay. the economic yeah. stuff, you know, because yeah, people yeah. just don't understand it, you know. Uh, yes, if you feel yourself in any position where you're kind of trying yeah. to encourage people or act as an interlocutor or yeah. or a coach or a teacher or yeah. a translator of jargon, then for sure... But I mean, the average person no, should you're right. have to be walking around with this they don't, level of detail. They don't. And they won't. They That freaks people out. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm just wary that we don't put too high barriers in. And that's why, yeah. coming back to the films, these are relatively easy things to watch that let your mind just circle around a system in a country that works and think, yeah. yes, right, you know, Um and it, it's strange because by the end of it, the first, as I've said, the first thing I'll say is that film makes me sad. And by the end of the discussion we've had, people are leaping out of the room. And I keep saying to them, what is up with Scots? We are weird in that you can come in, see the country we should have been able to be, realise that we've got quite a long way to go and end up being completely energised and going bouncing out of the room again. Yeah. Go figure, you know. No, I mean, the film is a great film. As I said, it's a fabulous achievement and uh, well done. You should be proud of it. And I feel proud of you for doing it. <laughs> <laughs> it is amazing so that anybody uh, can can achieve that in, in such a, with such a small kind of amount of resources and team. It's beyond my comprehension, to be honest with you. Uh, I mean, I'm always trying to do something, make something. And I find it really difficult. <laughs> well, the thing that would would yeah. would kind of be a problem for me, I think now, is that I've spent so much time doing things essentially yeah. with just two people. I always yeah. get news when people send an email and say, "Can somebody in the Leslie team send this to Leslie?" <laughs> but anyway, yeah. um, I would be now a bit stuck if there was a team because you know I'm just not used to that at all. No. Um, but anyway, thank you. I'm glad you liked it, and um, you know it will be. All- all over the place except Glasgow. But hey, I'm now confident that with the help of this podcast and a few well-targeted emails, yeah. there will arise a group who are prepared to just take on and get this damn thing into a... Yeah, I'll get this out as soon as I can. I, I mean... Uh, but just, around uh, the rest of Scotland, mm-hmm. you know, it's uh, it's all, you know, there's, there's screenings all over the place from about January the 12th through to mm-hmm. March. And then it will go online. Because it sort right. of hacks cinemas off a bit, the bigger ones. If yeah. you basically got something online already, I don't. I don't think it works like that myself, actually. No, I don't think I, so. But they just seem to have that in their head, you know. They do, and you can't argue, you know. So yeah, yeah. Anyway, I'll, I'll let, let you go. Thanks uh, for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Leslie. This uh, ends another episode of Jim and Pat's Classical West End Chat, and that was episode one hundred. Imagine that. Anyway, if you keep keep your eye out for the the film, which is called Denmark: The State of Happiness. If you do get a chance to go along and see it, I highly recommend it. I am 100% sure that you will love it. You'll enjoy it. So anyway, I'll catch you again. Have a great, relaxing or mad festive period. Catch you the next time. <laughs>